In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the catechism memory work. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubt them is unworthy and unprepared, for the words for you require all hearts to believe. And the Bible memory work. Therefore, whoever drinks the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the Lord's body and blood. 1 Corinthians 11:27. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, so uh, we're just going to continue in the table of duties. And uh, maybe we'll try and and finish this up today. We'll see. and uh, just by way of quick review, we've done it for a couple weeks now, but the table of duties is this chart of Bible passages in the catechism that relates different vocations or callings in life to what the Bible uh, says about those callings and how we should live. And, and really what this is, is a practical application of the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments uh, teach us in general, the moral law, how to live, how to love God, how to love our neighbor. But what does that uh, look like in practice, right? So Luther actually says something along these lines when he's talking about confession and about uh, thinking about what sins we should confess. He says, consider your place in life, your vocation, right, according to the Ten Commandments, right? So when you combine these two things, the Ten Commandments and vocations or callings, then uh, you get to not only think about what, in terms of confession, what sins we should confess, where we've messed up, but also uh, the positive side of how does God want us to live? 
What is society supposed to look like? What is the church supposed to look like? What is the family supposed to look like in terms of relationships between human beings and then our relationship to God as well? All right, so that's kind of what we've been talking about. All right, and so far we talked about the church. Um, we we kind of outlined these three estates, the family, church, and society. Uh, we talked about uh, the church, pastors, and hearers, and we talked about society. We talked about uh, government and citizens. We still have to talk about employers and employees, or uh, to use the older language, masters and slaves. Um, and we still have to talk about the family. So those are the things that are, are next. All right. Um, we'll talk about, uh, let's see here, what's next is husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. So the first uh, husband verse is 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. All right. Um, where to begin with this? Well, we should begin in the beginning. Whenever Jesus talks about divorce, right, and he talks about marriage, where does he go? He says, as it was written in the beginning. And he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we find out that uh, this is what Lutherans have, um, actually this whole topic is what Lutherans like to talk about in theology as the orders of creation, right? At, at the beginning of the Table of Duties, uh, Luther writes that these are the holy orders, right? The, the set-apart or sanctified orders of life. Well, there's an order to creation, right? Creation is not chaotic. And uh, I always use this example first because I think it is a little bit clearer in our society and, and people understand it uh, immediately a little bit more, which is that in a family unit, you also have to have order. Right. Uh, similar, same in, in the government, in the government and citizens. Right. We talked about this. If we didn't have a government, if we didn't have anyone punishing wickedness and um, preserving peace and people were just allowed, there were no laws. Right. People were allowed to, to murder and rape and steal. Right. Then they would. Right. It would be chaos. Well, the same thing is true within the family unit as well, that if um, we're jumping ahead here, but. Well, use children as the example first, that if children, uh, we talked about this in the fourth commandment, if children run the house, it's chaotic, right? If you let children be in charge, then uh, what would you have for dinner every night? Chocolate cake and candy, right? That's, that's what you'd have for dinner every night. You would never have, you know, meat and vegetables. And uh, so you have to have an order, right? Someone's got to be in charge. And God makes creation this way, right? He makes parents to, to raise children and children to honor their parents. Well, that's also true when it comes to a marriage, right, between husband and wife. There has to be an order. And our society uh, today wants to deny that, right? It wants to say that marriage is this equal 50-50 contract and that everything's egalitarian, that uh, basically men and women are interchangeable as far as their, their headship within a marriage. And what's that led to? Well, it's led to lots of things. One, a very highly increased divorce rate. Uh, secondly, um, it's led, I, I think this whole 
egalitarian mindset is one of the things that's led to such a rise in homosexuality and transgenderism as, as well, right? Because if, if men and women are equal and interchangeable, then it really doesn't matter if you have a man and a woman or two men and two or two women or three men and one woman or whatever the heck you want now, right? If everyone's kind of interchangeable and equal, then that's the kind of worldview or the foundation that leads to that type of thinking. So um, what's the order that God gives in marriage? Well, the order that God gives in marriage is that the husband's going to be the leader and the wife's going to be the submitter, right? And this is kind of the pattern that we've seen with a lot of these vocations is that the government's the leader, right? And the citizen is the submitter. The pastor's the leader. The hearers are the submitters, right? Now, in all of those things, husband, wife, father, mother, children, government, citizen, Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that that means that anyone in those relationships, especially in the relationships that are submissive in nature, are less valuable, right? And this is the thing that people always come at Christians about whenever they bring up husbands and wives, is that uh, you guys are, um, you know, patriarchal, which I. I don't actually have a problem with that word. We can talk about that, but you guys are patriarchal and 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 you think women don't matter and you think you want to put women down or whatever. That's not at all what the Bible says, right? In fact, what is okay? What does First Peter three seven say right here? Um, respect your wives as the weaker partner. We'll know, we'll talk about what that means in a second. As fellow heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Right? Be considerate to your wives. Right? And then in, in Ephesians 5, um, is that the, do we have Ephesians 5 here? Uh, we have Ephesians 5 when it comes to wives, but Ephesians 5 uh, says the same thing to husbands. Husbands, love your wives, and in fact, love your wives as Christ loved the church, willing to sacrifice your life for her. Right? So the husband has to be willing to lay down his life for his wife. That's not putting the woman down, right? That's protecting the woman. That's loving the woman, right? And so um, by no means, whenever we talk about husbands as leaders and, and wives as submitters, are we talking about wives as being less valuable in any way than their husbands, right? Or uh, it's, not a, it, it's never a value judgment when we talk about order. Order is for the sake of order, uh, not for the sake of value judgments, right? So... Um, that's the first kind of caveat we got to put there, just so we're being very clear about that. All right, but what does this order kind of look like? Okay, so um, Paul here, or no, Peter here, excuse me. Peter here says uh, to treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Well, one of the fundamental differences between men and women, men and women, right, and we know this now because of uh, the whole transgender sports uh, nonsense that's happened, is that men are naturally stronger than women, right? And that's built into creation because of the things that men are given to do for their wives. Um, there's a kind of threefold uh, acronym that, or not really an acronym, I guess, but um, that I've heard for this, it's like three Ps that men are given to protect, to provide, and to preside over their, their wives and their families, 
protect, provide, preside. And I think this is a good kind of summary of if you read through Genesis 1 and 2 carefully, and also 1 Peter and Ephesians 5 and Colossians, some of these other places, that uh, these are the, the things that the men are, are given to do for their wives, is, is to protect them, right? To love them, to be willing to lay down their life for them, right? To uh, provide for them and uh, in provide, you know, both, I think, financially and, and, and in other ways as well. And then to preside, to be the leader over their household, right? And, and really the, what I would um, summarize this as is that men bear the responsibility in the relationship. That the, a good analogy for this is if you've ever been in the military or if you know people in the military or whatever, um, think about like the Navy. If something goes wrong on a ship, and say some, uh, just some seaman, right, messes something up, right, puts the wrong coordinates into the computer uh, and runs the ship aground. Whose fault is it? It's that, it's that seaman's fault, right? Whose responsibility is it? The captain's, right? The captain bears the responsibility because it's his ship and it's his, uh, you know, corporal or whoever it was that, that made the mistake. And that's, that's what's true in, in a marriage, right? The husband has the responsibility for the marriage. And whenever things go wrong, it might not be his fault, but it's still his responsibility, right? Um, because he's the head of the household. And so on, on, uh, and I think this is something that's often overlooked because, um, it, you know, when, when the world looks at a Christian marriage and says, oh, you know, your, your husband gets to do whatever he wants and, and he's, uh, you know, it's so patriarchal and he has all the, um, all the honor in the relationship or whatever, that, first of all, that's, that's kind of just not true. Second of all, uh, insofar as it's true that the husband does have a uh, greater um, weight in the marriage in the sense of that he's the leader, that also comes, this is like the, the Spider-Man quote, right? Uh, With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and that's actually true. And uh, so it goes both, it cuts both directions, right? Because if uh, the, the man has greater power, okay, that's, that's fine. But that means he also has the responsibility of doing what's right. And as we see here, just by the very nature that the Bible gives commands specifically to husbands, we'll go out and look at Colossians 3, 19 as well. Um, going the wrong direction here. Colossians 3, 19. Uh, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. As we can see by the very nature that Paul gives certain commands and limits to the husbands, right? That this is another aspect we have to pay attention to. Just like with the government, right? A good government that we have to pay attention to and, and respect, right? And, and submit to, a good government has these limits, right? A good government's supposed to preserve peace and punish wickedness. 
Well, what's a good husband supposed to be doing? A good husband is supposed to be protecting, providing, presiding, bearing the responsibility, sacrificing for his wife, loving his wife, and uh, not being harsh with his wife, right? So this is the other thing the world will say is like, oh, you know, you and your patriarchal relationships, you're, you're saying that husbands are allowed to just beat their wives and get away with it. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's clearly not what the Bible teaches, right? Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives, right? Pretty simple. Um, so anyway, I just think it's silly. But uh, I will just make this side comment. I, I said it earlier uh, that I really don't have a, a problem with the word patriarchy because that, that is what we're talking about. I, I, don't, I don't think we should do this thing where we're like, oh, no, we're not patriarchal. Like, well, it, it is patriarchy because we're saying men are in charge of the households. That's what patriarchy means. So I just accept it and then move on with my life and say, okay, if that's what you want to call this, then that's what it is. Right? Um, but that's just one of those silly things that the, the world has against us. Uh, but at least let me define what I mean by that. Right? That's the – anyway. Uh, but the word is, I mean, the word literally just means like fatherhood. That's what patriarchy means, right? Patronage is the father, pater in Latin. All right. Um, so then for wives, right? So that's husbands. Uh, wives, we have Ephesians 5.22. And Ephesians 5 is uh, good for all of this as well, um, where Paul draws the analogy between Christ and his church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I'm going to keep reading past 22 as well. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, making her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, uh, so on and so forth. So Paul draws this analogy between the church and Christ. And that Christ is the head of the church, so husbands are, are the head of their wives. And um, wives are then to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And, and this is exactly what the church is supposed to do, right? The church is supposed to take what's in God's word and say, this is what Jesus says, whether we like it or not, we're going to submit to it, right? And we can do that trusting that what? That it's for our good. Right? If Jesus says it's for our good, it's for our good. Right? And if husbands are also following what they're supposed to follow, given by God to protect, provide, preside, bearing the responsibility of the marriage, protecting their wives, loving their wives, right? not being harsh with their wives, taking on the responsibility for the family, having a, having a mission. Um, th- this is, by the way, something I should say. In Genesis 1 and 2, I think the thing that really defines the family is the mission that they're given. Uh, so Paul, Adam is given by God this mission to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Right? He's given this mission, and then he can't do it alone, and so there's he's given a wife to help him, right? a wife that's perfectly made for him, from him, right? that takes on his name, that he fits directly with, right? And that he gets to be the giver and she gets to be the receiver and that she is going to help him and nurture him and nurture the family. 
And she's going to help on this mission as, as he uh, delegates and, and he bears the responsibility and he goes forward. And I think that's really what a lot of our modern marriages are, miss, are missing is that men don't feel like, the men don't seem like they're on missions anymore. Like they don't have a vision for their life. Right? And this, I think this is what, um, what women, I, maybe I, you know, um, I, I shouldn't speak out of turn, but I think this is what young women really want to see in guys is they want to see a guy that's like on a mission that has a vision for his life that wants to do something and go somewhere, right? And, uh, you know, whether, and it might be as simple as like, you know, he wants to, his life goal is to be a good mechanic and open his own mechanic shop or something like that, right? But I think uh, um, if he's passionate about that and he's um, willing to do what it takes to make that happen, and he is a godly man who is going to do things the right way, right, and bear responsibility, and he's on this mission to uh, be able to provide for a family, that that's what attracts a, a woman to a man, right? And that a woman would then want to help him in that mission, right? I think this is uh, something that's, that's really missing in our society today is uh, a lot of guys, they, they're just kind of like, oh, I don't really know where I'm going in life, you know? And um, it's that, that becomes, I think, difficult for a woman to say, okay, if we say men are the leaders and women are the helpers, well, what is the woman supposed to help with, all right? Um, anyhow, all right, so that's kind of a side point, but uh, women are given to be the helpers, right? And, and to trust that they're being led in a good direction, right? And I think if, if men are doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're godly men bearing the responsibility, then a woman is gonna want to line herself up behind a husband, right? Um, I think, and this, this gets us into the temptations for both husbands and wives. So if this is the order of husband and wife, what are the temptations to sin here? The temptation for the husband I think is to give up his headship, right? The temptation for a, hu- a husband is not necessarily all the time, especially in our society, sometimes it is. But most of the time, the temptation for the husband is not to lord his headship over his wife, right? Um, the temptation for the husband, I don't think most of the time is to say, hey, look, I have the power, you need to submit to me. I think most of the time, the, the marriages that I've seen that um, have issues, normally the problem is that the husband is giving up his responsibility, right? He's being some kind of lazy and, and he's letting the woman uh, usurp his authority, right? It's not normally that he's lording his headship over her. Now, so, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that is the case. But, but normally it's that he's just giving up, right? He's not bearing the responsibility. He's not being the man he needs to be. The temptation for woman, for woman is, I think, almost always to usurp her husband's authority, right? To try and become the head, to take over. And uh, this is what God even tells Eve 
is going to be the problem, right? He says your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you, right? That's that's one of the curses and and uh, of sin in in Genesis chapter three. So I think those are the two temptations. That that's uh, I think worth mentioning here. So, so, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really, Proverbs one through thirty is about the man. <laughs> okay. So Proverbs one through thirty is about as a father writing to his son about how to be a man in the world, and then Proverbs thirty one is the image of the wife that he's looking for, which is contrasted to the. Um, basically being seduced by lust in Proverbs 1 through 30. Now, what I'll say about that is that we have a hard time, I think, I have a hard time at least, uh, especially talking about this like provision in our modern society because, so it, it used to be pretty simple that you could say men work outside the home and women work inside the home. And in Proverbs 31, I, I think the woman's actually still working inside the home. She's being, she's making the home productive, right? She's, and this is, um, I could talk more and more about this, but uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul talks about head coverings, which is a whole nother topic, but when Paul talks about head coverings, um, he says that the woman is the glory of the man. And what the, what, what, when what, what has happening when something is the glory of something is that it's magnifying that. So the image I think there is that the man is, you know, providing for the household, and he, you know, he's bringing home the the meat, right? He's farming, he's doing whatever, and and the woman then takes that and beautifies it, right? She glorifies, she she's able to take what uh, the man has has done and going out. And she's able to take that for the household and make it beautiful and glorious, right? I think that's kind of what's going on in Proverbs 31. Now, it used to be easier to talk about the man working outside the home and the woman working inside the home um, prior really to the Industrial Revolution. So prior to the Industrial Revolution, stop me if I've talked, given this, this spiel before. Uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, what you had was, in most cases, like, what, so in America, I know, in like the 19, uh, like the late eight, or the, let's see, what year is that statistic from? I don't remember. Anyway, some, sometime in the 19th century, you know, kind of prior to the Industrial Revolution, like 80% of Mer Americans were farmers. And now it's less than 1%. Okay, so very dramatic change there. But when you had 80% of a population being agricultural, right? And even if they weren't agricultural, you had, you know, maybe a guy is in town, a family's in town, and they own the general store, right? Well, how does that work? Well, they probably live upstairs, and then the general store is downstairs or something like that, right? Or on a farm, the farm is out the back door, right? And you live in the farmhouse, 
So when a woman worked inside the home and a man worked outside the home, it wasn't that like the woman sat around and did nothing and the man went out and worked. It was that they both worked and one literally worked outside and one literally worked inside, right? So again, going back to that value judgment thing, it's not like we, you know, whenever Christians talk about the, the woman working outside the home and, or inside the home and the man working outside the home, um, it sounds weird to modern ears, but like this was just the nature of reality was that there weren't washing machines. There weren't dishwashers, right? Um, there weren't big government schools that you could send your kids to, right? There, the, the work inside the home to maintain a home was a lot of work, right? And um, th- this is a, a hard thing for modern people because we have a bunch of time-saving devices, right, which allow women to, to have more time in their lives um, if they're not working inside the home. And uh, we don't have this main- maintenance of like, you have to kind of live where you work and work where you live, right? It's just a totally different world that we live in. And so um, I'm not saying that the Industrial Revolution is like inherently sinful or something, but I'm saying it makes this conversation a lot more difficult because how do you determine like how the work needs to be done and how the work is going to be uh, like what work is providing and and what kinds of works need to be done both inside and outside the home and who should do what and how do you maintain this distinction? It's just a lot harder of a conversation, right? And so, I mean, I think that um, there are some simple frameworks that we can put into place to make it easier, right? So I think um, I think the man needs to have a job, right? I don't think it's it's good if you have a, a um, marriage where uh, the woman works and the man stays home. I just don't think that's very in line with what the Bible teaches. And uh, I I think that ideally the man should also make more than the woman makes. But I think there are instances where it's okay if the woman has a job outside the home. I mean, I um, especially with the Industrial Revolution, right, with these time-saving devices – and depending, it also depends on the family structure, right? So there's a difference between like my family where we got four kids and one on the way and Rebecca stays home, like because we want to homeschool our kids and there's not really another way to do that unless she stays home, right? Versus, um, you know, someone who has one or two children and they're older, right? Then, then the woman has a lot more time, right? To, to take care of these things. So it, it really is uh, dependent on the individual situation, I think, where you have to, to kind of deal with these things. Um, but there's, uh, I, I think there, there just needs to be some clear frameworks and groundworks where it's like, okay, this is how the husband's gonna bear the responsibility, right? Um, and this is how he's going to be uh, clearly the, in charge of the household, right? So, uh, like, for instance, when it comes to, like, major financial decisions, I think the husband should have the final say-so, right? He's responsible. So there, there are things like that and that get very practical as far as uh, 
how how do we make sure that we're maintaining these distinctions in a more modern household? Because more modern households are just more complicated. Yeah, Kyle, did you have something? Oh, oh, Roger did. Okay, I saw an arm like right here. So interestingly, that's kind of a Hollywood invention. Um, in, in early America, when one-room schoolhouses became popular, it was actually 99% men. And then, and then it slowly switched to women um, kind of later on. Yeah, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. Because she has the knowledge to become this, and it's very good in her field, and, and and the money is just there. And they try to make decisions, but when there's a great big split before children and stuff, how, how do you sit between them two and make that decision? Yeah. Because um, of her knowledge, she's going to make twice as much as him. I so this is probably an unpopular opinion. But I would say, what does it profit a man to gain his to gain the world and lose his soul? Like we should we should follow what Scripture says, and like if that means if if a, if a man and a woman want to be in a marriage and and be in a Christian marriage, um, I think long term. I think there are places where short term maybe the the wife is making more, but I think long term. It's it's really not structurally sound for the marriage, for the man to make less. It's just always going to be. It's kind of like, an, it's analogous to when we talked about pastors and hearers, and we talked about how pastors have to meet these certain qualifications, and one of them is to be above reproach, right? Where there's not something that the congregation could bring against the pastor and hold against him. That I think in a marriage. If the man's going to be the head of the household, um, if his wife is the breadwinner, then that's kind of a reproach situation waiting to happen. So, yeah, it's a hard teaching because, um, I, you know, in our modern society, it's very often the case where women end up with good jobs, and and in our society, because of feminism, in fact, the I mean, the feminists will tell you that there's a, this wage gap or whatever, but the statistics don't support that theory. <laughs> um, I can share statistics with you if you want, but uh, it, it seems actually that women are now more rewarded in the workforce than men are, and actually normally promoted first and, and, and so on and so forth. But um, that's not always the case, but oftentimes that's the case. So. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that um, it's hard in our society because you're going to have a lot of, of, of marriages this way. Um, but I think, and, and I like to think in terms of short term and long term because short term, you know, people end up in situations and things happen. Uh, but if you're thinking about marriage, that's for that's lifelong, right? So you gotta you gotta plan and think long term. Yeah. Church in this over the last 
50 to 80 years that we've not taught this biblical vision for marriage. We've, as we've watched society preach this other right. position that you right. can have whatever you want, but not preached that there actually is a vision for relationships and marriage that is biblical, that, that, that God has, has, has put forth. I don't think we preach that. Yeah, I never right. heard that coming up in the church, that, that there actually is a, a God ordained, and there's, there's a good reason for that. Right. And I think um, if you look at the fourth commandment, that what is it? The, the fourth commandment says, children, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And everyone kind of knows that this is true, right? That if children are respectful and honor their parents, that the household as a whole is happier, right? And I think the same thing goes in marriage, that if the roles are clearly defined and we live according to God's word as much as we can, that people, that, that it's, act, even though you might not have as much money, you're happier, right? Um, a good example of this is, is having children, right? That uh, if you've ever had children, you know that children bring joy, right? They cost money, right? I'd be a lot richer if I didn't have four, almost five kids now. But, uh, man, am I happy. Like, so I don't really care about the money in that sense. Um, and that's what Psalm 127 and 128 are all about. But uh, anyway, I think, yeah, that, that the church has, to, to Rod's point, um, this is one of those areas where we just dropped the ball in the last last 50 years. And we like even when I teach this, you notice like I have to give like 18 caveats because it's like, well, this is what the world says, and this is what the world says, and this is what the world says, and this is what the Bible says, but we're also not saying this, right? So um, it's just a it's it's a hard teaching, but that's uh, I think yeah what the what the Bible what the Bible teaches. So yep. Any other questions or comments on that? All right, so that's husbands and wives. Um, uh, let's see, what's next in the list? We got, yeah, to parents and children. So very similarly, um, actually, we're already there kind of in Ephesians 6, and I'll just read 1 through 4 because that's par- parents is 4 and then children is 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. And we just talked about this, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then fathers, and this also encompasses because the Bible is patriarchal, (laughs) mothers, uh, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. All right, so again, just a very similar pattern to what we've seen that within an ordered relationship, there's a submitter and and a responsible party Right, and the responsible party here is the parents, and the parents have limits to what they're supposed to do. Right, they're supposed to not exasperate their children and and to raise them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. We'll talk about what that means. And then the children, um, insofar as the parents do that, are called to honor their father and their mother. Right, and actually, I shouldn't say insofar as the parents do that, because there is a sense in which 
we've talked we talked about civil disobedience, right? Where if like the government, for instance, commands you to sin, you should stand up against that. And if parents command their children to sin, they should stand up against that. And if a husband commands his wife to st- sin, she should stand up against that. Um, with that said, uh, there is also a goodness to submitting even in times when the responsible party or the oh where the um, the headship party let's say is is not perfect so parents are not perfect right and and the government is certainly not perfect and uh, husbands are not perfect right and there are times like we said where if there is a, a headship party, let's call them, that calls them, that, that commands the person submitting to them, whether it's the government and citizens or husbands and wives or whatever, to sin, there is a time to stand up against that clearly. There's also a time, however, um, to, as much as we can, continue to honor the people we're supposed to honor, right? And the thing with the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, is that it's a reflection of the first commandment because who is God? He's our father, right? And so we we should have no other gods before him. We should honor our father. And whenever, so there's an interesting thing I've noticed that uh, this is kind of bad language to use, I think, but like the most faithful Christians I know. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but the, the the Christians I know who, you know, they're the ones that show up every week and that, you know, are, are very strong in the faith, are reading the word every day, strong in their devotions. The, I mean, you know the kind of Christians I'm talking about, and uh, some of you are in this room, by the way. Um, I'm not saying, oh, none of you are like that. <laughs> um, but very strong Christians, right? Interestingly, if they happen to have parents who are not Christian parents, um, I'm thinking there's like a couple people I, I know in particular who grew up in really rough, kind of bad households, right? And their parents are not Christian and did not treat them Christian. They still honor their parents, right? They still, as much as they can, right? And there are times and places where they just can't. As much as they can, they still try and call their parents uh, respect their parents' ideas and and advice, right? Um, they're not like, oh, my parents are you know worthless pagans, right? And they've just tar- totally turned against them. They still try and follow the fourth commandment, and I think that's telling um, that there is a time for for that um, with children and parents and with all these things that as much as we can, like like with the government, right? I mean. There are times when we just need to, to stand up against the government, but we should always still strive as much as we can to recognize that the government is established by God, right? And we cannot become cynical about these things, right? Um, and and wives with husbands, right? Um, wives should not become cynical about their husbands even when their husbands are not great husbands, right? They should they should try and um, encourage their husbands and and so on and so forth. So anyway, that's uh, was kind of a side point. But 
Yeah, so children and parents, um, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, is command with the promise. Uh, but yeah, just like we've seen with all of them, right, there's, uh, oh, this is what I want to talk about. The, the command of the parents is twofold, right? Don't exacerbate and don't, um, and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And this is, I, I think, always like this balance when, with, when it comes to parenthood is that uh, with that first part, uh, that we don't want to uh, over-anger our children, right, or exacerbate our children, is that you're always doing this balancing act as parents between over and under disciplining, right? Where on one hand, we want to raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord, and you know there are things that they need to, to learn, right? They need to learn to honor their parents. They need to learn... Um, not to draw on the walls, right? They need to learn. Uh, I'm, you know, it's not like I'm speaking from personal experience or anything. Uh, they, you know, they need to learn to to stop talking and go to bed or whatever the case is. Um, and they need to learn, you know, not to steal and to to honor God and to all the all these things. Um, on the other hand, if we discipline in a way that is uh, out of anger, right, and is out of resentment, then that causes the children to just react poorly against it, right? And I think one of, so one of the issues there is that, and I'm guilty of this as a parent, is that parents will often let their kids get away with things and they'll do it um, so, you know, say a, a kid is, is doing something at the table, he's, he's playing with his food, right? Well, if he's playing with his food, like, kind of quietly and it's not really bothering you or, or whatever, then you just kind of let it slide. And then it, it gets a little worse and he starts smearing it on the table or whatever, and you're like, ah. And then he, you start to get a little bit upset, but you don't say anything. And then he starts throwing the food on the ceiling right? And then you lash out against the kid. That's bad parenting, right? What you should do as a parent, and again, I'm, I'm guilty of this, is the second they start playing with it a little bit, you should say, hey, we don't play with our food, right? And 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 discipline them. Uh, kind of, there he is right there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and that, and that's, that's always the, the problem is we will will either over-discipline and react out of anger, right? Or we'll under-discipline and let things go, right, when we shouldn't. So um, that's the balance of parenting. So I, I do like, I love that verse because it's, a, it's always a good corrective. It's like, don't exacerbate, raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? Um, and for anyone who's a parent out there, there's a, there's a great book. I recommend it to every parent I ever meet um, by J.C. Ryle. He's an Anglican priest in the uh, night. Yeah, late 19th century, I think, um, called Duties of Parents. Just an, it's really an essay. It's a long, kind of a long essay or a tract. Um, it's, you can read it in one sitting. It's like 30 or 40 pages, but it's uh, fantastic. And it's based on Proverbs 26. Uh, Raise them up in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. So it's a good, really good book. Um, Okay, that's that's parents and children. Any questions on any of that?
its concerns. All right. Uh, to workers of all kind and to employers and supervisors. And again, we're still in Ephesians 6. I gotta find it again. So again, we'll take these together. Ephesians 6, we'll just do 5 through 9. And uh, yeah, we, we just have to deal with this language, by the way, that um, the Bible doesn't talk about employers and employees like the modern catechism translation does. It talks about slaves and masters, right? And uh, I, we talked about that, I think, back with the 10th commandment that uh, slavery is not inherently sinful in the Bible, and but and this is exactly one of the the um, texts that we need to pay attention to when we say that. That our ca- our caveat with that is that the Bible gives commands for how the masters and slaves are supposed to interact. Right? It's not just this free for all slavery. Right? And we would say that slavery, when slaves are mistreated, is bad. Right? Um, and I think we would also say. Today, like Christians don't go institute slavery either. It's not like Christians are like absolutely pro-slavery, right? Um, Paul, when he writes to um, Philemon about Onesimus, the slave, he's like, "Hey, it would be. I recognize Onesimus as a slave, and that's you know that's all fine and well, but it, he would be helpful to me in the gospel. So if you can consider freeing him from my account, that would be that would be good, right? So it's not like Paul's like hey, we need to have a lot of slaves or something like that. But anyway, all of that is to just say that this is the language the Bible uses. But I do think it is applicable to um, masters or to, to employees and employers because um, in, in, in one way, it is kind of slavery to have a job, right? Like, um, I mean, if you just don't show up to your job, if you don't do the duties of your job, right, you're gonna get fired, and then you're not going to be able to afford where you live, right? So it's kind of like, um, on a fundamental level, it is there is a connection there that uh, there are people in charge, right, em- employers, and then there are people who work for a living, um, you know, quote unquote slaves, right? Now, of course, there's differences there too, but I do think it's a valid application of what the Bible says about masters and slaves to talk about workers and employers, right, or supervisors. All right. Um, But yeah, Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Right. So what does Paul say here? He says, um, in the eyes of God, you're equal, right? You're both humans. And so um, you need to treat each other with respect and love, right? And then with uh, the, the slaves, he says, God sees your good works. Um, he sees your productivity and he sees that you're doing good and that's a good work, right? So keep on doing that, right? Respect your supervisor, right? And again, he, God, God gives these commands because it's for the sake of order, right? 
It's so that there's not chaos in the world. Whenever people work together, someone's got to be in charge, right? Um, you've probably all had this experience where, like, maybe you were in school or uh, maybe in, in the workforce, f- workforce or whatever, and you've been assigned some sort of group project, and there's two people who think that they're the leaders. Never goes well, right? You've got to have order. And, and so um, these, these commands are given just um, in order to keep that order. I, the other thing it makes me think of, by the way, is I love this prayer that we've been praying in the prayers of the church. I want to read it from, here we go, uh, from the altar book. Um, Let your blessing remain upon the seed time and harvest, the commerce and industry, the leisure and rest, the arts and culture of our people. Take under your special protection those whose work is difficult or dangerous and be with all who put their hands to any useful task. Give them the just rewards for their labor and that knowledge that their work is a blessing in your sight, Lord, in your mercy. And I, I like that because when we think about this, this idea of slaves and masters and employers and employees, one of the points that the Bible's making there is that your work is valuable. You can have valuable work, right? Um, that... that even for people who have jobs that we would consider, you know, not like uh, glorious, right? People have dirty jobs with Mike Rowe right now. Um, um, People who have jobs that are, you know, maybe not that, maybe people are stalkers at Walmart in the, you know, at the 10 p.m. shift or whatever. It's not a glorious job. Who cares, right? It's a useful job. The world needs people who will do that. Right, and that's good and right and salutary, um, and and other people have other jobs, and but we pray that God would recognize that and that and He does right, and even if um, the job is not you know uh, aesthetically pleasing or whatever the case may be, what does what does Paul say? Serve wholeheartedly, as if as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. All right, so I, I think that's a, that's a great prayer that we pray. All right, uh, next time we will cover youth, widows, and everyone. And uh, then we will be done with the catechism. So I think I've decided, I have to talk to Vicar Bennett. I think I've decided that I would probably like to do a gospel after this. Um, I haven't taught a gospel in ever, so I kind of want to do that. (laughs) Um, I've been teaching the Old Testament for like a really long time at Beautiful Savior, and I've been teaching Genesis on Thursdays here. And I've preached through a lot of epistles before, um, but I think I want to teach a gospel. So I don't know if it's going to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but that's what I'm leaning towards. So let me know if you have any thoughts about that. But I kind of want to do something out of the Bible, not a topic, because we've been doing a topic. So, um, yeah. All right. Let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. We pray that you would bless our worship together and that it may be in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would open the minds and ears of all who hear your word that we may live according to it. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.